So today's talk is um, on the, uh, the hero's journey. And um, it, um, it um, comes from the work of uh, Joseph Campbell, a well-known uh, researcher into mythology. Um, even though we are the central core of our practice is Zazen and, and the letting go of thoughts, thinking, not thinking, as Dogen would say, bringing our attention to the <coughs> direct experience or bare experience of this moment on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. The place of narrative um, in the relative world is um, still central to human beings and given the fact that we're human beings um, even though in our Zazen practice we're aiming to sort of go beyond story we're also always um, contextualized and embedded in stories and, and um, so hence um, we need to pay attention to the stories which we uh, embed ourselves in. And uh, we want to embed ourselves in stories that are empowering of our practice and supportive of our practice. And um, when we were little children, we were probably very unconscious, but of the power of the imagination, but um, I remember as far back as I know, being on my little tricycle, and after that, you know, uh, prior to adolescence, um, <coughs> how the imaginary world would blend with the with reality, so that. Um, um, the playing fields around where I live would be turned into uh, the Antarctic when it snowed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, adventures were, were experienced on a regular basis. And um, as adults, when we um, leave behind our childhood, and we still have... Um, we start to access imagination again through the power of stories. So, I mean, I began to enter into the world of novels at around about the age of 13. I remember reading Tom Sawyer and H.G. Wells and really becoming part of that world. Later on, uh, I was joined by Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. And then as I got older, of course, the... Uh, novels became more psychological and more spiritual um, but um, and then I got into the work world and um, sometimes when we enter into the work world and the world of family we tend to forget about the power of imagination although um, if we have children we can appreciate it again by getting in touch with their imagination and sharing that with them 
but uh, in our in our in our spiritual journey, um, the uh, the imaginary realm is um, always available to us, and has a, a great power. Um, um, and um, the, 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 the our brain, so to speak, doesn't really know the difference between mm-hmm. um, reality and imagination. And um, we can bring about transformations and change through the power of imagination as well. Um, Joseph Campbell uh, um, was, uh, did a documentary series once called The Power of Myth. You can get the book called The Power of Myth. I have it here. But uh, it was a series. Uh, he was interviewed by a journalist called Myers. He's still working, I think. In this, yeah, he's still active in the States, Myers. But uh, Joseph Campbell died a few years ago. Um, but he was, he was quite well known in the 70s. I don't know if you've come across him at all. But one of the most... Uh, Famous books he wrote was The Hero with a Thousand Faces. You come across that book or come across Campbell? Um, in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, um, as the title suggests, um, he, he researched the mythology of, of many different cultures uh, from different, different historical periods as well. And uh, he claimed to discover what he called a monomyth. In other words, uh, a, uh, a one myth that uh, had many different faces, many different characters, but all seemed to follow a very similar pattern. And, uh, and this particular myth was to do with the, uh, the, the transition from the ordinary world to the spiritual world, or the realisation of the spiritual world, and, uh, and bringing the spiritual world back to the ordinary world. And um, the, uh, this can be seen in a, in a, as a circular pattern. So in the two diagrams I gave you um, as handouts, um, the, uh, the hero's journey is uh, the circular one, and uh, where you see this journey from the ordinary world into, in this diagram it says, the special world, but I'd probably prefer to call that the inner world. And... Um, and then back again into the ordinary world. And so there's this sense always in, in these myths of there and back again. So in the process of um, the journey, the hero is transformed and in that transformation brings back that uh, to back to the ordinary world and back to the community where he or she came from. Um, in the uh, now the the classic Zen um, mythology, in terms of the the journey of the practitioner, is uh, can quite easily fit into that kind of hero's journey. Um, Mainly, the, the the triangle is a very very simplified version of that, um, where there's the journey from the the ordinary self or the ordinary mind. The, the self in which we uh, begin our journey, the, uh, the dualistic self, the ego-centered self, and uh, to the experience of no self, and that may be gradual or sudden, even if it's sudden, it still needs to be gradually worked through. Mm. 
and that working through process is at the apex of the pyramid, the true self or the unique self. And the, uh, the true self is all about the integration of the self and the no self. And, uh, and so that the, uh, the process uh, does not end when one has some glimpse or realization or starts to gradually uncover the no self. The, the whole journey of the new, of the true self is a, is a, is a lifelong journey um, both to uh, have um, um, uh, one foot in the, this, on, the, on the right hand side of the triangle, the absolute emptiness, the way, the big mind, and on the other side of the triangle. And um, so, um, in terms of our practice and the stages of our practice, it's, it's, it's differentiating and realizing more and more true self. Um, but we never get to become 100% the absolute or 100% emptiness. But um, the more we, that becomes, uh, the more we can access that and the more real that becomes to us, then um, the more balance and harmony we can bring into our inner life and also to the people and the community we live with. And the whole point of this journey, of course, is not about the um, overcoming our own suffering and upsets, but about how we can live with others and, and also assist others in overcoming their suffering and upsets. And that's the, that's the body's effort path. So um, in terms of the hero's journey, um, act one is the separation from the old self. And um, so we start off with the ordinary world, and um, it's quite often, uh, uh, many, um, you know, m many uh, people who have gone on this kind of journey um, always um, have some kind of story where they felt a little bit like an outsider, maybe for some reason when they were growing up, and um, and um, in, in this in these kind of stories and the mythologies that are passed down. So when we take the character of Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, he was always seen as being a bit of a weirdo. And, um, and uh, so there's a sense in which we might start off having this feeling of being a little bit of an outsider. And, um, and, the, and the, the call, the call to the journey, uh, which is sometimes called the call to adventure in, in these kind of mythologies. But if we're looking at it from the Zen perspective or the, the Zen journey in particular, we, we hear the call, and, um, and there's many different ways in which that can come upon us. It might even come upon us in, uh, in adolescence, or even sometimes in childhood. Among a lot of the uh, uh, legendary you know, figures <coughs> in Zen Buddhism, like Dogen, uh, um, had the experience of losing their mother or losing their father at a very early age, and uh, making this vow to enter the monastery when they were about 10 years old or something like that. Um, so there can be, like loss can be an experience, an early sense of loss can trigger this call. Um, sometimes uh, it could be a very early glimpse, a very early um, transcendental experience that sometimes people have. Um, that they can't quite understand or integrate it at a very early age, but that can spark the call. It could be a crisis of meaning as well, um, which can come upon us during adolescence or later. Um, I remember going through a very intense, depressive time in my later adolescence. Um, the feeling that something is missing, and uh, 
And often it can be uh, encaptured by the question, who am I? So it's kind of like, uh, at a very early age, uh, some people get uh, start to question, what's it, what is it all about and who am I? And that, that triggers the call. Mm. And then quite commonly, the third part of this journey is some sense in which we refuse that call. Um, so, of course, as soon as we hear the call, then the insecurities and anxieties, the fear of failure come up. And uh, at this part of the journey, too, we, we might try many different paths and we might uh, read lots of different books, uh, go and seek different spiritual teachers, go on journeys overseas. Um, but maybe we never end up committing ourselves to one particular path and then we lose ourselves again and come back to the ordinary world of the ordinary ego-centered world. This may, may go on for many years and uh, we might experience more loss, more crisis of meaning, another, another, a divorce, etc, uh, etc. Et until, again, until we finally, we finally accept the call. We really start to listen to that, that call heralding us. Then around about that time, then we might meet what's called the mentor in this uh, tradition of the hero's journey. Can ex can appear as an external teacher or an internal teacher. Could be a glimpse of the self. Um, and uh, there's some sense then in which the training begins. Uh, one enters upon a path and starts to work with a teacher. And uh, in crossing the threshold, it's a sense in which we gain some sense of commitment to the path. In Zen Buddhism, that is often symbolized through the Jukai ceremony, which is like a commitment ceremony, where one takes up the path of the, of, of the, of the Bodhisattva. And uh, in some, uh, in traditional classical Zen Buddhism, that's where the student will be given a Buddhist name. So, for example, Joko, Charlotte Beck, well, Joko is the name that she was given. And uh, we don't do that in ordinary mind school. In the precept ceremony, we're given back our ordinary name. Um, and we settle into working with a teacher and open ourselves to the unknown. And often there's some sense of a barrier that comes up in, a, in all these different mythologies. And it's very nicely um, symbolized in the Zen tradition uh, in the collection of koans known as the gateless barrier. You know, the paradox being that um, we experience this barrier to the uh, non-dual uh, big mind and uh, we keep bumping up against this barrier and barrier can take many different forms. And, um, but often it's, uh, it, it's, it's the barrier is, is, is basically getting caught in, our, in the various aspects of our ego self and the various fears and anxieties that arise, the various ways in which we find it difficult to accept different parts of our self. Because um, it's very, uh, even though it's a gateless barrier, um, in fact there's no barrier other than what we ourselves create and uh, and the lack of self-acceptance is one of the ways in which we create that barrier. Um, um, so, um, the work begins in Act 2, um, in, the, in, the, in the hero's journey, it's referred to as the, the descent and the initiation. Um, we could just basically call it the inner journey and the meeting the self. 
And uh, this starts off with all various uh, tests or challenges and allies and enemies. And um, I like to sort of um, sort of de-romanticize this a little bit and uh, you know the tests that we start to you know, the, very, the, the tests of ordinary everyday life all the upsets and disappointments and setbacks that we all experience all the fears that we experience all the fears of failure or not being good enough um, the sense in which we ourselves uh, may still be um, uh, ashamed of various parts of ourselves and so on. And, uh, and even though in this journey we, uh, you know, we're going to be from, it's about all about you know, dying to the ego self. Um, in order to do that, there is a sense in which we strengthen the ego by being able to um, get to know ourselves intimately and get to, uh, we, we continue to cultivate our ability to observe ourselves and, and get to know ourselves in these all these re emotional reactions that we experience in our relationships or in our work um, um, they're all clues as to where we, where we need to go where we need to head if we're going to uh, realize our wholeness and our completeness which is our birthright which we all inherently already are complete and whole only we don't realize that that's the barrier. We don't, we don't feel complete and whole. And uh, uh, allies, uh, we can, uh, allies can be um, family members, elders, friends who have encouraged us on the way, people who have recognized our talents. Some of these can be very special people that we can uh, evoke in our practice and uh, and uh, they can be with us, even if people who have passed, who have died, can still be there as allies to us. They can be, or they can be inspirational figures from history, or contemporary figures such as artists, or writers, or songwriters, that have inspired us in some way. Or indeed, they can be imaginary beings or inner guides that we might meet. And. Um, in, in these stories, of course, there are always enemies as well in these mythologies, but I like to think uh, from a Zen perspective about uh, people in our lives that we may feel anger or resentment towards, so a sense in which the process of also forgiveness that we need to go through in terms of uh, letting go of any anger and resentment uh, towards people that have hurt us in the past. And then as we keep on going uh, in this inner exploration, it's the approach to what's called in the, in the myth, the inmost cave. And so we need to prepare ourselves to face what might be the most, that darkness of the cave, and what, 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 what might be in that dark cave that we're afraid to look at. And, um, and that's when we need to get to know our defensive structures, our protections. Um, our gatekeeper and other protectors who uh, have spent most of our lives trying to protect whatever is there in that cave that's been exiled away. And so we start to, you know, practice more in terms of, and we're starting to try and in this process, we're starting to try and get a sense of what it means to differentiate self from the, from the ego self, from the parts. Realizing that the parts are also ourselves, all our emotions and our thoughts are all part of who we are, and uh, of the patterns in which they arise, 
Um, but it's also, these are also passing through something which we can start to get a sense of being ourself, our true self, our self. And um, so then as we start to face our fears in this process, um, often in contemporary language we talk more about the traumatized parts, the exile parts that have been disowned. As we start to re-own them, reconnect with them, we're starting to do that compassion work within ourselves. And we're starting to become, develop that self-acceptance. And uh, we can, all those burdens that those exile parts have been carrying can be released. And this can be done in a very an imaginative way, with very real effects. And, uh, and, um, and so, as, we, as this process continues, we start to get more and more a sense of how we're not our ego. And, uh, and that sometimes people in Zen practice can have some really amazingly intense experiences of that, which is called the Kensho experience, the Satori experience, often referred to in Zen as the death, the death of, the, of the ego self. And, um, but um, normally it's more of a gradual process. There might be little glimpses every now and again where the, everything falls away and all your sense of identity falls away, but often it's, it's more subtle and more gradual than that. But the most important thing is that that question about who am I, well, we start to get a, a real sense of that. Sense starts becoming theoretical and starts becoming something that we can actually access and embody. And, um, and so, as we uh, more and more realize and release our, our, our true self in the mythology, that's the, that's the realization of the, of the, 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 the reward within, the jewel within. In, in Zen, the, uh, this uh, no self or true self is often uh, symbolized as a jewel, a mining jewel. Uh, and what it comes with it is self-acceptance and clarity. Um, from other traditions, you might see it as the kingdom within, and uh, or the holy grail. But it's the realization of that completeness, that from right from the very start there was nothing lacking. And then that's just again, as I said, in the, in the Zen tradition, that's then the beginning of the return home, and we're returning home every moment. But there's also the sense in which, in Zen literature, it's kind of like coming back down from the mountain into the marketplace, and uh, and uh, where you come back and you set up shop in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that of course has its, the, the, the road back or the journey home has its challenges as well. Uh, for example, um, for some people who are lucky to enough to have had sort of quite uh, intense Satori experiences, it's very easy to have a sense of ego coming back and thinking, well, how special and how great am I to have had that experience? You know, mm. I'm an enlightened person now, and all of a sudden we're back in the dualistic ego-centered self again. And uh, so that, that's often referred to in Zen as a form of Zen sickness, where one gets stuck on one's achievement or realization. Or another aspect of the trickiness of that is getting caught in the that experience of of, of boundarylessness, uh, and no boundary. And, uh, and I think that sometimes where that's got tricky in uh, with relationships between teachers and students where certain boundaries have been crossed 
Um, and uh, so there are lots of tricky stuff that happens even after the realization of the self. That's the whole process of integration. And so um, the creation of the true self or the unique self is that ongoing process of embodying non-self with the, with the human self. Um, starting to work with all our different parts and, 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 and transforming them into resources that we can draw upon when needed. And so we become the master of the two worlds, the absolute and the relative. We're integrating the two. And we return in the, in the, in the mythology with this idea of an, of an elixir. So like in Zen, it, well, it's compassion and wisdom. It's the bodhisattva pass. And the, and the hero returns with the elixir to share with others and to heal the wounded land. And uh, so this is not about us, it's about sharing with others. And, uh, and that's the Bodhisattva path, and that's where a teacher starts teaching. But we're always teaching all the time in the way in which we relate to others in the marketplace. And, um, and we, uh, we, we want to encourage others to also go on the same journey, for them to realize their own self and go on this Bodhisattva journey. So we return back again to the ordinary world, but now the ordinary mind has now become the ordinary mind being the way. So we started off as ordinary mind, lost in egoistic delusions, and finally we return home with ordinary mind, but ordinary mind is now the way, because it's been enlightened by what we've experienced on that journey. And we are now at home in both worlds. So, you know, Campbell's work on the hero's journey um, can be a nice way of um, looking at the Zen path and uh, you know, have a think about where you might be on that, on that journey. Um, so we've got a little bit of time left. Are there any, any comments or any questions about that? When my son was 11 and a half, he wanted me to give him a knife. And we lived on a property uh, that had rainforest on it. And we'd walk up to, I'd walk up to the waterfall and he said, um, Dad, you and I uh, take our knives and I want to go beyond the waterfall. So we climbed up and I I followed him and he went as far as he wanted to go. And then we returned and he said, uh, Dad, just not talk about this to Mum or Iris. Then I found out about uh, Pathways to Manhood uh-huh. and I took him on that, uh, that picture. And we, um, they had a, a night of sleeping out on their own where sort of the dads and the support staff were actually watching each individual. And um, <clears throat> that gave my son just the most amazing experience. And um, we, we between us created this ability to speak honestly. Um, and he's now a um, detective and he takes me to the cricket each year and he speaks on it, I express my feelings to him and he expresses his feelings to me. And it's a great relief to him that he can share 
these incredibly dramatic events. Someone tries to be. So I'm really related to that in this, in this theory. Um, and I'm so pleased you asked me for the knife. <laughs> Thank you. And it must be wonderful for your son to have uh, a father and an ally. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and he, yeah, yeah, he actually recognises that. So it can happen quite young. I mean, he's still got, you know, he's on his journey, but that, that was a, a beginning for him that he, he and I recognise. Has any, uh, like, uh, was there any particular um, story or, or novel um, um, uh, for anybody here that sort of uh, helped you hear the call to go on a spiritual journey or any particular experience when you were younger? simple to be ourselves, but so hard. Because <laughs> um, we see, we, we get so many prohibitions about being yourself as we're growing up. <clears throat> and uh, but, um, I have a reverse father and son story that it was kind of like um, when I found out we were pregnant, that was, um, I was about 32 when uh, my son was born, 32, 33, 1988 he was born. And, um, that's, that's when I uh, moved from sort of like, you know, reading and exploring to trying to make a commitment to a path, you know. Um, I wanted to try and be the best father I could for him. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, unfortunately, it uh, didn't quite work out that way in the sense in which um, his little life was, was thrown all over the place when his mother and father separated when he was about four and a half. But, mm. um, but the intention was there. Mm. And he was very inspiring even though... How old are children? Is it, is it about three months when they first sit up? Look like little Buddhas. Is it about three months <laughs> when they sit, <laughs> sit up straight? On the, is it about three yeah. months or six if you, months? If you sit them up. Yeah. On, on their own, about six months. About six months. About six months they can mm. sit up on their own. Mm. And they just sit, they just sit there in the sunlight and just... Yeah, yeah it's just uh, like a little Buddha. Yeah, yeah they're all complete, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So he was very inspiring um, <laughs> for me. And, you know, you just, you just get that glimpse of that self-acceptance and completeness you know, mm. the, the, in the infant. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, of course, it doesn't take very long before they have to learn language and go to school. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Anyone else like to make a comment or? I think at a young age, Biggles was one of my favourite books. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of adventuring in Biggles. Okay. So yeah. an adventuring spirit out of it. So Biggles is one of your allies. Yeah. Well, don't Barty forget. and Biggles. Don't forget to draw upon him sometimes <laughs> when the going go gets tough. I and John at a later time in life was a story that was pretty inspirational. Sorry? I am John. Yeah. I, I am John. Yeah. Um, do you want to quickly tell that story? Or? Oh, well, the, the story of the, what is it, the, um, a dark forest that is, has a reputation of there, there's a monster at the bottom of the pond that, um, and when people go into the forest, they disappear. I think and the, there's a, um, I can't, Remember the story. There's a a, um, a little prince. The king calls on people who can come and they try to beat the guy at the bottom of the pond. I think. Is it? Does anyone else know the story that I'm trying desperately to remember? <laughs> um, Do you know it, John? Uh, I only know glimpses of that. Uh, yeah, I've, I've forgotten it myself. So I'll okay. research it a little bit more. Okay. But, you know, the the island, there's a wild man at the bottom of the pond. There's a wild man at the bottom of the pond. Let's cut to the chase. There's a wild man at the bottom of the pond. Wild man at the bottom of all our ponds. All our ponds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the, right. Yeah. The wild man at the bottom of the pond is actually me. Mm. It's very hard for me to approach the pond. It's very scary as to what I might find. Yes. Okay. Mm. And the key is often, the key for the boy was under the mother's pillow and there's all sorts of little messages. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Great to read that again. Mm. Mm. Anyway, I'll, <laughs> I'll um, get better at remembering it next time you ask me such a question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah. I forget the, uh, what was the name of the poet who uh, made that story well known? Yeah. Um, he was very active in the uh, in the men's uh, romantic movement. Um, what's his name? The poet? Who, yeah, I can't remember his name. I can't remember. Mm. I can't remember. Yeah, but I so I mean all these all these stories and that we uh, are very very can be very powerful even mm -hmm. in our twentieth twenty first century. Because for me that can speak to a deep part of me that isn't my ego self. Yeah. I, have a, I have a recognition and um, a desire to move towards the story. Yeah. When, when we recognise something in the story, something in the story that we recognise mm. from a very deep place, I mm. think. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even when we're very young. Yeah. Mm. I think that's why kids love uh, stories and being being read to. Yeah. 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 Imagine so much more than the words I'm speaking. Okay, thank you.